Welcome to Turn of the Century, a podcast about the turn of the 20th century. I'm Joe Hawthorne, and today we're fighting through the last battles of the Anglo-Ashanti Wars. The History of Africa podcast rejoins us to discuss the fourth and fifth wars in this colonial conflict. The British had scored previous victories, but defeating the Ashanti would be dangerous and costly. Likewise, the once mighty Ashanti leaders hope to defend their way of life and hold back the Anglo invaders. These conflicts on the Gold Coast or modern Ghana would have major implications for Africa in the 20th century. We'll learn about the practical and symbolic importance of these wars. One, two, three, four, five. For the five wars, let's begin. Hello, everyone. I'm back here with Andy of the History of Africa podcast. We left you on the edge of your seats last time with what would happen in the Third Ashanti War. Now, we know that major changes are sweeping the British Empire, and the Ashanti know this is going to be a problem in future conflicts. Also, fun fact, the Dutch borrowed a piece of land and then just sold it to someone else, sold it to the British Empire. So, Andy, can you pick back up with us? You were just talking before about industrialization and Ashanti politics. So how does the third official Ashanti war start to unroll? Well, we began or we left off in the last episode discussing how the Ashanti responded to this. Uh, basically, like the Dutch basically borrowing this land and then selling it to the British. And the way that they responded was by kidnapping a group of European missionaries and basically saying to the British, we'll release them when you give us this land back. And the British respond to that by saying, how about this? Uh, We'll invade you and just take them back. And so the British assemble an army uh, and basically get ready to invade Ashanti land. And I want to basically address sort of a misconception that a lot of people have about how colonization in Africa took place. Uh, usually people uh, perceive it as a more or less racialized divide between the armies. That they, to make things frank, they imagine that on one side you have the British and it's a bunch of white guys in red coats. And then you have, in this case, the Ashanti or whatever African force we're discussing, and it's a bunch of black guys. 
But in this case, and throughout most of the African continent, that is not true. The British army contains, out of its 5,000 people in the Gold Coast, exactly 80 Europeans. And that is about 500 if you include people of mixed race descent. And the rest of that is filled by primarily people from the British Caribbean colonies and also some Fonti allies. So in reality, I want you not to picture, you know, a bunch of white guys versus a bunch of black guys. In reality, this army is fought between an army of a bunch of black guys in red coats versus a bunch of black guys who aren't in red coats, if that makes sense, right? Yeah, and I just want to jump in real quick out of curiosity. Who are these Caribbean soldiers? Why are they here? The British throughout their empire really make use of the various colonial peoples. Uh, Usually, uh, later on in British history, this is primarily going to be people from the Indian subcontinent. Um, You know, famously in World War I, uh, British Indian colonial troops were used throughout the colonies and wars in against the Germans in Africa and against the Ottomans in the Middle East. Um, but in this case, in Ghana, they're bringing people from their various colonies throughout uh, the Caribbean. This is primarily Jamaica and the Bahamas, but uh, you might see a few people who are Trinidadian or... Uh, trying to think of some other British from the British uh, Virgin Islands, maybe maybe something like that, but primarily Bahamanian and Jamaican. That must be, I mean, to put yourself in the shoes of of a Jamaican guy who is suddenly fighting this conflict in Africa because the Dutch borrowed a piece of land and then sold it to someone else. It's a crazy personal situation to imagine. So how does this proceed when you, you described How do these two armies line up? What happens when they face off? Well, the Ashanti and the British meet in several skirmishes, um, basically when the British invade. The Ashanti military leadership knows that if they just line up and engage in a traditional battle in the Ashanti manner, they'll probably lose. So instead, they try to harass the invading British lines with uh, sniper attacks and what we what might get characterized today as guerrilla warfare, but not exactly. I would call it more traditional Ashanti warfare, you know, that old style of that you have your seven components, but with a more decentralized and uh, light engagement, uh, more more characteristics focused towards that, you know, sort of hit and run, light engagement. You don't line up and fight a decisive battle. And initially, this really works out well for the Ashanti. The British don't really advance much, and they suffer some pretty significant losses. And in these initial battles, or skirmishes is probably a better term for it, the Ashanti seem to be winning the war pretty handily. But if you remember to last episode, we talked about how one British factory with this new industrial economy was capable of producing more guns, powder, and ammunition than a whole city of Ashanti craftsmen and maybe then in the entirety of Ashanti land as a whole, that really starts to show. The Ashanti ammo supplies begin to run out. And normally, if you're in an army from that era, if you're running out of ammo and powder, the other side's probably running out too. But the Ashanti leadership is, you know, just, they, whenever it seems like they're running low on ammunition, the British just seem to have an infinite stockpile. 
And there's a there's a an anecdote from this time, which is that apparently there is one shed in Accra, which is the capital of the British Gold Coast colony. There's one like basically ammo store shed, or maybe shed like is a bit of a yeah, probably warehouse is a better term, warehouse or storage unit that has more ammunition and powder in it than the entire Ashanti kingdom, just in this one warehouse. And so with the with ammo running low, the Ashanti are basically just refor- they're forced to retreat because they just they don't have anything to fire back at the British. And in uh, the British eventually reach the outskirts of the Ashanti capital, Kumasi. And at this point, the Ashanti are forced to, they, they think, okay, we've retreated and they've reached our capital. We, we can't keep retreating. We have to try to mount a battle. And it, it, is, it is a disaster. The Ashanti are pretty much entirely out of ammo at this point. Uh, they basically have to resort to fighting hand in hand against British firearms. And it is, it goes terribly for them. Uh, the British just, crash into Kumasi and they take over the city and there's nothing the Ashanti can do because their army has just been devastated. Um, and the British, when they reach the city uh, are really impressed, I guess you could say, um, when they reach the Ashanti Royal palace. Um, apparently one of the war correspondents who was writing about it said that they, that this palace was rivaled only by like Buckingham and Versailles. In terms of its splendor, he was especially impressed with that they had a library in the uh, in the palace that basically had books from like multiple languages all over the world, and he thought that was very impressive. And in classic British fashion, they say, "Oh, this is very impressive. This is great. Let's blow it up." Um, they, <laughs> oh, okay. I, I, you know, I really thought they were gonna say, "Let's take it and put it in the, you know." Royal British Library, the, the Imperial Library. Oh, trust me. So, they do that it? too. They, they, they do plenty of that too. So they rig the whole palace with explosives. They take out all the art and valuables and basically put them on a cart to London. And they, they then rig the palace with explosives and blow it up. Like, they, it's, it's very metaphorical, right? Yeah, I mean, it is. Why? Well, the British have a bad habit, I guess you could say, of trophy taking throughout their entire empire. Um, And in terms of blowing up the palace, it's basically just a way of telling the Ashanti, like, I don't care if you won these initial skirmishes. I don't care if we can't don't truly have the capacity to fully annex you guys yet. You guys are submissive to us now. And the Ashanti after seeing this, after seeing their palace get destroyed, not really being able to mount a defense right now, are forced to sign a humiliating treaty. Uh, They forfeit all claims to the coast, and they're hit with crippling war reparations. And uh, they basically are forced to do away with any regulation or tariffs on British uh, trade, which is a really big deal, and I'll touch on that in a moment. And they're forced, and this is also a really big deal, they're forced to end trade with all non-British merchants. So they can't trade with the French or Dutch or anyone anymore at all. This kind of reminds me of British 
op- or British and Chinese opium wars and dealings with China. Is that a good comparison? It is a great comparison. Because something that is worth noting is that the Ashanti don't technically lose any land in this treaty that they actually had control over. The, the border still sits at the Pra River. And the British domination of Ashanti land takes place primarily through economics and diplomacy. And, of course, in classic British fashion, they need to end one thing that kind of seems positive into the treaty. So they, they say the, to the Ashanti, no more human sacrifice. You know, okay, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I was reading somewhere that that was kind of, from the British point of view, was a justification they used for these wars, is saying that it, these were wars about ending human sacrifice. Was that like part of the propaganda? Yeah, the British do that a lot in Africa. Usually it it usually comes with that they'll include in a treaty the abolition of slavery. That's the most common one. But an end to human sacrifice here basically plays the same role. Um, so yeah, it's basically a way of saying this wasn't a war to try and, you know, end trade regulations and put war reparations on the Ashanti. No, no, no. We're we're saving the poor sacrifice victims within Ashanti land. Gotcha. And so, you know, that now things are really starting to to move quickly because we were talking about conflicts right at the beginning of the 1800s. We've zoomed to the 1860s, 1870s. The British now, you know, it's it, I was going to say they have the upper hand. I think that's a bit of a um understatement, but so how does this kind of end game play out? You know, how do we end up with a fourth and fifth war when it seems like the British are already in such a strong position. Well, if you think that things are bad for the Ashanti now, it's going to get worse because right after the British leave, the Ashanti economy basically collapses. Um, the Ashanti state was primarily funded by tariffs on trade goods. You know, like uh, if you export ivory or import ivory, so if you export ivory or import fin- import finished goods from the British, you are uh, basically funding the Ashanti state. But now that the British have said no more regulations or taxes on British trade in the region, the Ashanti state now can't fund itself. Um, also, the British now monopolize Ashanti exports uh, officially. They already practically did with this annexation of the Dutch Gold Coast. But now it's in writing. If a French merchant somehow shows up, you will be prosecuted if you make a deal with him. So that's a big deal. You know, you mentioned uh, the fact that the Dutch leaving was a big deal. And I didn't quite grasp not just the fact that the Dutch, um, you know, leave everyone with a kind of (laughs) raw deal afterwards, but the fact that the British are the only game in town, I think, is really a big theme that you're getting at here, too. Oh, yeah. So keep going. How do these proceed? And not, not just that. They also have to repair the capital, which has basically been destroyed, and they need to pay war reparations, and their economy has imploded. And to make matters worse, the current Ashanti king uh, has to face five separate rebellions between 1877 and 1883, and that last one succeeds in overthrowing him. And the Ashanti state at this point can basically no longer afford to pay for its professional army. And they move to a more local militia system, which is way inferior to the old Ashanti force. And that basically sets the stage for where the Ashanti are when we start moving into the last 
official Anglo-Ashanti war. And for reasons we'll get to in a little bit, calling this one a war is a bit of a misnomer because, well, I'll get to that in a little bit, but basically this war is motivated by something that historians call the scramble for Africa. In that basically in the year 18, I believe 1880, I can't remember the exact year, but there's the Berlin conference happens where basically European powers get together and say, here is where uh, they basically divide Africa into spheres of influences and say, this is going to be British land. This is going to be French land. This is going to be German land. This is going to be Belgian land. And, you know, obviously a bunch of European guys sitting in a room doesn't make it reality and drawing lines on a map doesn't make it reality. But in 1884, the Germans conquer Togoland, which is right to the east of Ghana. And so they're making those lines on a map into reality. And in 1887, the French begin a series of prolonged wars to take over the Ivory Coast. And, you know, th that's not really the topic of this episode, but I recommend you look into those because those are equally fascinating as the British Ashanti War. And the British, seeing that all this going on, are now facing some pretty big anxieties. They had basically told the other European powers that like Ashanti land was within their sphere of influence. But the Ashanti still being an independent country, the British feared that they might align with the French or Germans. And so they demand that the Ashanti become a British protectorate, which is basically that they become a British puppet state. You know, you're not allowed to make any relations with other foreign countries and your trade is completely dependent on the British. That's what they demand. So it's it's interesting. I'm going to jump in for a moment because it's interesting to kind of think this through. The scramble for Africa, I think, you know, we rightly think about colonization, invasion, but also the one thing that the Ashanti seem like they could use right now is simply having more Europeans to play off the British. And that's the British's fear. Indeed. Um, that is part of what gave the Ashanti so much power earlier on in their history was that they were capable of playing the Dutch and British off each other and usually siding with the Dutch in economic matters that really empowered them to be able to uh, fund these large professional armies. And the British are now the only game in town, but with the French and Germans showing up in the region, that might not be the case for long. So the British... Uh, frequently basically harass the king of Ashanti, Prempa, and they say, hey, become our protectorate. And he says, no. And they say, hey, become our protectorate. And he says, no. And they say, hey, become our protectorate. And he says, uh, let me think about that. No. And eventually, a new colonial governor is appointed in, a, in uh, the British Gold Coast called William Edward Maxwell. And this guy, William Edward Maxwell, is a really big deal for Ashanti land because he is not an experienced colonial governor in Africa. Rather, he was a governor previously, I believe he was an assistant governor, basically the equivalent of that, in British Malaysia. And in British Malaysia, they take indigenous independence a lot less seriously than they do in the British Gold Coast, right? Like the British, don't get me wrong, they are, uh, especially in that third Anglo-Ashanti where they basically devastated the Ashanti and are trying to loosely subjugate them. But in Malaysia, the British don't even 
like they don't even comprehend the concept of like that there are independent countries in regions other than Europe. They just say, okay, that's land. Uh, that's a British colony now, essentially. Um, they, there's a lot less autonomy for the people who live there than there was in Ashanti land, for example. And so uh, when he arrives, William Edward Maxwell, he arrives at that paradigm of we want to do unilateral relations. You know, we want, we don't want to negotiate with the locals. We want to tell them what to do and they do it. And this is something that he, you know, he's not dumb. He recognizes that if he tried to show up and do that now, he'd just get laughed out of the room. So he decides that rather than negotiating a protectorate ship, he wants to crush the Ashanti militarily because he thinks that's the only way to get this relationship where he tells them what to do and they do it. He has an imperial vision. Very much so. He's sort of a, a new uh, a new British model. It's sort of sort of like how we talked about how the British uh, African company collapsing was basically a turning point in the British paradigm of how they related with the local people. He's another one of those. The British now, their authority goes from being like, okay, we want to dominate and have exclusive relations with the Ashanti to we want to tell them what to do. We want them to be a puppet. And so the British mount an invasion. And, well, I should say something that's actually kind of important first, is that King Prempa, recognizing that this new guy is like hell-bent on making war with the Ashanti, finally buckles and says, okay, fine, we'll become a protectorate. You know, which is what the British had wanted for so long. But this new governor, William Edward Maxwell, just tells him, no, we don't want you to be a protectorate anymore. We want to invade you. And so the British mountain invasion, but Prempa in what can kind of be called a smart move and a silly move at the same time, knows that he can't win, so he just tells his armies not to engage. And they just don't even fire at the British. Nobody dies in this war, at least not of bullet wounds. That's why I said at the start, calling this a war is a bit of a misnomer. It was more like a British extended walk. You know, the, kind of a maybe I'm misusing the term here, but coup de gras. I don't even think coup de gras is a, is appropriate here. It's more like a surrender. Okay, there you go. the The war of surrender. Yeah, basically, okay. it shouldn't be called the Fourth Anglo Ashanti War. It should be called the First Anglo Ashanti Surrender. But I did say that this is sort of a smart move because while it seems kind of dumb initially to surrender your army and just allow the British to march in. It does do two things. First of all, it ensures that the Ashanti don't get more of their stuff blown up and further destroy their economy. Um, King Prempa knows that if he tried to resist militarily, they'd just lose and the British would destroy more Ashanti property and uh, it would just go poorly. And second of all, it sort of denies uh, Maxwell this overwhelming military victory that he wanted, right? Because... Maxwell, with this invasion, really wanted to crush the Ashanti in battle and force them to become British puppets. But because they can't crush them in battle, because the Ashanti say they won't play, and we won't play your game, we won't even meet you in battle, then they don't get this decisive battle that they can win. Uh, So kind of angered by this, but also trying to sort of undermine Ashanti authority, Maxwell decides to... Uh, basically get King Prempa on some really trumped up charges where he 
says that he hasn't been paying his reparations fast enough. Uh, I mean, of course he can't pay his reparations fast enough. The Ashanti state's basically broke at this point. But, you know, he basically gets him on saying, like, you've been evading your uh, payments of uh, the war reparations to the British. So we're deporting you to the Seychelles. The Seychelles are basically just an island chain all the way on the other side of Africa. They're in the Indian Ocean, thousands of miles away. And this is basically like, it kind of reminds me of what the British did to Napoleon, where they basically said, like, after they defeated him, okay, we're annexing, we're sending you all the way to St. Helena so that nobody can deal with you anymore. Yeah, so this punishes this king, but then what does this do for the British going forward? Well, the British now have Ashanti as a protectorate, and they have a lot of direct control over the Ashanti state. And the Ashanti state is in absolute shambles. Um, the Ashanti don't believe in this concept of that, okay, our king has been deported, we should appoint a new one. Because he's still the rightful king. So they just leave the golden stool empty. Um, and Ashanti land is governed by local lords, basically. There's just n- no one in charge. And it's a really awkward scenario in which sort of leads us into the last Anglo-Ashanti war. And, you know, if we're looking at this from the Ghanaian or Ashanti perspective, the protagonist of this story is a really fascinating woman named Ya Asantewa, who is this, uh, she's, she was born in 1840, so she's kind of a little bit elderly. She's in her late 60s at this point. And, uh, or sorry, early 60s, my bad. I, I, I do history, not math. Sorry. Um, she's in her early 60s at this point, and she is one of, the li- uh, one of the wives of a regional lord within the Ashanti state. And like many people within Ashanti land, especially many of the older people, she remembers when Ashanti land was still a respected power that had true independence. And like many people, she is very resentful of this new informal British rule. And so around 1900, the British governor Maxwell retires and is replaced by a new governor named Frederick Hodgson. And at first, the Ashanti were probably hopeful about this replacement, right? This guy, Maxwell, who was so hell-bent on dominating the Ashanti state, is now out of here. And this new Hodgson guy's in, maybe we can sort of negotiate and work with him to regain some of our sovereignty, right? Wrong. Hodgson really seems uninterested in uh, giving the Ashanti sovereignty or even taking it away. He's really interested in one thing, and that's basically looting Ashanti treasures and artifacts. Like you said earlier about how the British are really interested in uh, taking basically stuff and sending it back to the Royal Museum. Uh, He is the, the human embodiment of that attitude. He has an obsession with Ashanti artifacts, which is first and foremost, in his mind, the golden stool. Um, A lot of sources on Hodgson, I think, report that he wanted to sit in the stool. And a lot of them kind of make it out like Hodgson was just like a doofus who didn't know any better. But I have a really hard time believing it because of how hell-bent he is on the matter. He doesn't just want to sit in the golden stool. He wants to basically take it and send it back to Britain, is And I don't think he's doing this because he doesn't know how sacred it is to the Ashanti. I think he's doing it because he specifically does know how sacred it is to the Ashanti. 
as kind of a final symbolic F you to them. You know, sort of like how they once uh, destroyed the Ashanti Palace as a way of basically symbolically saying you are under British rule now, whether you know it yet or not. Hodgson is basically saying to them by taking the golden stool, you are under British rule now, you know it, I know it, and there's nothing you can do about it. We're going to take your most precious artifact and there is nothing you can do about it. It kind of reminds me, um, because you're, you're talking about how there really wasn't a, a central king or authority. It kind of reminds me, you know, if the United States, the president was exiled and then we didn't have a new president and the White House was just empty. And then the British, for example, just took the White House and like, you know, brought it to the Royal Museum. It, it, you know, it kind of feels like completely taking away this the literal seat of power. Mm-hmm. I would say yes and add that even it's even worse than that. Because remember, the, the golden stool is incredibly sacred. Anyone other than the king touching it is an offense punishable by death. Uh, they take that so seriously that when they hand the golden stool over to the king, um, they only handle it like through a pillow and blanket because nobody else is supposed to touch it. And remember, the stool in Ashanti belief is set to contain the soul of whoever sits on it. It's sort of like how, you know how in the West we sort of view like gravestones as being like a sort of sacred thing that you don't desecrate because it like sort of holds somebody's essence in a sense, you know? It's basically like that, where it's it's that this would be more like, in my opinion, like if the British dug up and exhumed the body of George Washington and took it to Britain to display in a museum. But like, even that, I think, is underselling it a little bit. And so he, Hodgson really thinks that the Ashanti can't do anything about this. And he's sort of right. But they do do one thing about it, which is that someone within the Ashanti palace, where it was being kept, takes a stool and hides it. Because they hear that he wants to take it, and he they say, okay, I need to move this thing before this Hodgson guy gets his hands on it, and they hide it somewhere. And nobody knows where it is. And then what happens? Well, from here, Hodgson, with his sort of interest in the stool, sort of boils over into an obsession at this point. He is a he basically orders the entire British uh, garrison within the Gold Coast colony to basically drop what they're doing and engage in this weird Easter egg hunt for the golden stool. And the Ashanti are now, if they couldn't get more outraged, the, it, this is incredibly outrageous they're basically british soldiers are now like stopping by people's houses hey have you seen the you know your most sacred artifact Uh, we want to take it from you so have you seen it please let us know know, like this has to be drumming up like so much resentment and in response to this resentment many of the various local lords and bureaucrats of the ashanti gather together at a sort of uh like meeting to discuss what to do and most are unwilling to rebel. Like, they're, they're outraged, but they're not willing to do anything about it. Because, you know, what can they do? They don't have a formal army anymore. And even when they did have a formal army, they were defeated. So what can they possibly do? And one of the people attending this meeting is Asantewa. And she is definitely someone who is on the more rebellious side. And she gives a really famous speech. She pulls out a literal gun at this meeting, fires into the air to get everyone's attention, 
and proclaims this following speech. And I want to read it just because I, I think it's wonderful. Um, now I see that some of you fear to go forward to fight for our king. In the brave days of Osetutu, you would not sit down to see their king be taken to a foreign land without firing a shot. No European would have dared speak to lords of Asante the same way that the governor spoke to you this morning. Is it true that the bravery of the Ashanti is no more? I cannot believe it. It cannot be. I must say this. If you, the men of Ashanti, will not go forward and fight, then we, the women of Ashanti, will. I shall call upon my fellow women. We will fight. We will fight till the last of us falls in the battlefields. So this, she basically calls out the entire, uh, like, group of lords in front of her and says, like, look, if you guys won't fight, you guys are cowards and we, the ordinary women of Ashantiland, will fight on your behalf because you're too cowardly. And this speech seems to spark something in that there was already all this underlying resentment, but most of the lords at the meeting say, okay, fine, we will help you out and we will be on your side and we will rebel against the British. And Asantewa, with this new resentment channeled, forms a really ragtag army that's basically composed of various locals' militias. Probably the best soldiers in the army are the bodyguards of local lords. And then most of it is composed of volunteers, including, like she said in her speech, a lot of women actually join in on this battle, which is unprecedented in Ashanti history. Uh, women do hold some, uh, certain women hold something of an elevated society as like matriarchs in Ashanti land, but it is still something of a patriarchal society. You know, women taking up arms to fight on the battlefields is unprecedented. And this, this army, you know, basically out of nowhere, the British barely even have word at all that there's a rebellion brewing launches an attack on the British soldiers who are just basically scattered throughout Ashantiland searching for the stool. And they're completely caught off guard. Because, you know, <laughs> imagine you've been like sent to like occupy Ashantiland, right? They don't have an army. It's been four years since the last war and nothing has happened. And then out of the blue, suddenly a full Ashanti army just descends on you while you're looking for a stool. Like <laughs> I, I, I don't know about these guys, but I, I would have pissed myself. <laughs> I was and I was I was curious too why you know sources would go back and claim that the governor was a bit of a fool uh and I, I can see where this narrative starts to build it because it's like they're on this what now seems like a foolhardy mission to all spread out and play hide and seek with the Sewell when this army comes so what happens do the Ashanti you know in the fifth war uh reclaim their independence what what's the end result here? well Yes and no. Mostly no. Um, things initially look really good for the Ashanti. The Ashanti, uh, or the British troops in Ashantiland, are forced into an incredibly costly retreat. They basically just, like, I, I mean, they do what, I, I guess, makes sense. They, they freak out and run. They run to this well-defended British fort in Kumasi. And the fort is equipped with machine guns and artillery, and it's very well defended and very well stocked. And the Ashanti rightly realize that if they try to overtake it, they'll just be expending their own lives for nothing. So instead, they sort of lay siege and they wait for an inevitable British attempt to relieve 
uh, to relieve this uh, besieged army. And they figure, okay, well, when the British send relief, we'll harass them and turn them back. And the British do end up sending a release for a relief force of about 700 men. And the Ashanti do what they said they would. They harass them with sniper fire. They conduct guerrilla attacks. They sabotage their supplies. They sabotage roads. And they slow their advance dramatically. And this force, this relief force, does still manage to reach a fort. But by the time they do, they're as exhausted and demoralized as the men inside. They basically drop off supplies, then try to retreat back to Accra, which, you know, capital of the British uh, Gold Coast colony, with about one-fifth of their original, of the men that they came to rescue. You know, four, four-fifths, 80%. Just simply were either too injured or just didn't want to leave the fort. And maybe they were right to not want to leave the fort. Because while this force retreats back back to the colony, uh, the Ashanti follow them and inflict heavy casualties on them as they run. And this, so far, has been a huge failure on the part of the British. All they've done, really, is expend lives and resources and attempt to bail out these forces who are trapped in Ashanti land. Um, They haven't actually gained anything. But, and you sort of have to feel for Asantewa, who is leading this army of rebels at the moment. She kind of knows that it's just a matter of time until she loses. Her plan is not to actually win this battle, because she knows she can't. Her plan is more so to inflict enough of uh, of a damage on the British, to inflict enough wounds and damage on their armies, that the British figure that fighting just isn't worth it anymore and that the Ashanti are able to sign a peace deal that sort of somewhat recognizes their independence and gets the British to stop their search. And the British send a second relief force. And by the way, all this is happening exactly at the turn of the century, the year 1900, because just it's appropriate for the turn of the century podcast, right? Cue ding, 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 you know, uh, bell sound. <laughs> so thanks. <laughs> Keep going, though. I want to figure... I want to not figure out. I want to know what happens. And... This this relief force, like the first one, really struggles to reach Kamasi, but it's bigger and better equipped than the first one, and they manage to reach it relatively unscathed, relatively high on morale, and still with a decent amount of supplies in tow. And at this point, they're like maybe a few days outside Kamasi, and the people in the fort can hear fighting outside, but they're really not sure what's going on. They're almost out of food, and they talk and they say, look, Okay, if this relief force doesn't arrive within five days, we're all going to starve to death. So if it's not here in five days, let's just surrender. And then two days later, the relief force arrives, which really to me illustrates just how surprisingly close of a battle this is. If the Shanti forces had managed to hold off this relief force for three more days, uh, all 400 men in the fort would have surrendered and the Ashanti basically would have this huge bargaining chip over the British. Um, but unfortunately for Ashanti, uh, that doesn't happen. And eventually, you know, with this, with these two forces now linked up, the British immediately go on a tear. They win a series of victories against the Ashanti. They capture Kumasi and begin skirmishing with the Ashanti forces around the countryside and low on ammunition and supply, uh, supplies and recognizing that the situation really isn't going to improve. Asantewa figures, look, we should probably just sign for peace now and hope that we can at least get something out of this. 
in the end, the death toll from this war, despite the Ashanti basically being in shambles at the start of it, is surprisingly close. The The British lose about 1,000 men. The Ashanti lose about 2,000 men and women. And again, I should point out that like, like in the previous war, most of these men are not ethnically British. Most of them in this case are Nigerian from the Hausa ethnic group and with some Fonti reserves and Caribbean reserves as well. And I think that's a good place, you know, to think about the British Empire and to think about as we wrap up these wars and, and the importance of this whole conflict. What is the consequence? What is the final result of the <laughs> seven to five wars uh, between Anglo and Ashanti forces? You know, what is the importance of all this? What happens in the rest, going into the 20th century? Well, the terms of peace agreed upon are definitely not good for the Ashanti. The British figure, okay, we're going to end this whole protectorship. You're a colony now. You're a part of the British Empire. You're not a semi-independent part. You're just a part of us. And Asantewa and every lord who participated in the revolt was deported to Seychelles. Um, however, it's really hard to call this war an Ashanti defeat because of one simple fact, which is that the war was fought for one purpose, in a sense, which was to ensure that the government didn't find the golden stool. And they won because in this peace treaty, the British government agreed to end their search for the stool. So did the Ashanti actually kind of win this war? Yeah, arguably, I'd say so. You know, they, they did what they set out to do. So the legacy of this war, the War of the Golden Stool, is a complicated one because while initially the British seem to respond with more punitive measures of more deportations and more, uh, more uh, taking of sovereignty, in the long shot, like in the long term, it actually convinced the British of the opposite. It convinced them that the Ashanti are just an ungovernable people. And there's kind of a good reason to believe this because with no king and no army, they still mustered a force that inflicted a thousand British casualties. Which, sorry, not casualties, deaths. Which is, you know, more casualties than that, but a thousand deaths. And the British, you know, realizing that, like, look, trying to punish them for this is probably just going to be worse for us in the long term and stew up more rebellions, they restore the protectorate status in 1902. And furthermore, the Ashanti, in a sense, are a British colony in name only. Because while they are technically a British colony, and they're still forced to trade uh, exclusively with the British, they essentially revert back to their status in like uh, seven, 18, seven, like after the Third Ashanti War, where they're practically independent of British authority, believe it or not. The British only ever really intervene in extreme circumstances like certain death penalty cases. But otherwise, if you lived in Ashanti land at the time, you wouldn't really be hard-pressed to forget that it was a British colony at all. And uh, King Prempa, even, in 1924, the British decide, look, we, we're kind of done holding him in Seychelles. Our relations with the Ashanti have improved. Let's allow him to return. And I, I should point out just sort of a fun fact that the golden stool remains missing also until the 1920s when it is uncovered by a bunch of road workers. And in 1957, 
Ghana regains its independence from the British Empire with the decolonization of Africa. And the Ashanti Kingdom still remains within the Republic of Ghana today, albeit as a state, as a traditional monarchy, as they call it. Um, Ose, uh, and like they still, they still have like more power than you might expect for a mostly ceremonial position. Uh, for example, the current king of Ashanti land is a man named Ose Tutu II, and he's engaged in peace talks when, with internal crises and settled disputes over land within the Ashanti state. And you know, he's still a, a, a revered man to this day. You know, it's still the Ashanti state is still alive, albeit in a mostly ceremonial form within Ghana. So it sounds like as we start to, again, think big picture, and I put on my history teacher hat for a moment. First of all, it sounds like the wars that you're talking about um, having success, yes, they they saved the golden stool, but also choosing to fight at this moment did seem to create this long-lasting sovereignty, sense of independence in Ashanti land. And so going beyond that, I'm curious, we've mentioned industrialization, uh, we've mentioned the the empire grab, the scramble for Africa, um, and larger geopolitical events going on. But if we're thinking about this whole Ashanti Anglo saga, what should we learn from this? You know, what other lessons can we take away, not just about Ashanti, but about larger history of the British Empire, West Africa, um, and events in the continent. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because there's really three things that I think that people should take away from this story of the Ashanti. And the first one I think is really important because it really touches on a big misconception that people have of Africa as a whole and especially of West Africa, which is that if you picture in your mind, you know, uh, European colonization of Africa, people usually think of something like the Zulu War. You know, they think of an industrialized British army fighting against men with spears and shields. And this is entirely ahistorical, at least when it comes to West Africa and most other parts of Africa as well. Rather, the way I would describe it is... It resembled a European army of the industrialized era fighting against a European army from 1820. You know, imagine if the armies of Europe from the Napoleonic era took on the armies of Europe from the 1880s or 1890s. Um, So I want people to get that image out of their head of men with spears and shields getting mowed down by machine guns because it's simply not accurate. Um, I also want people to get it out of their heads that European armies prior to really the industrial era were superior to African ones. Because in the case of West Africa, and also in East Africa, but especially in West Africa, these European armies and West African armies were approximately equal in terms of quality until I'd say around like 1850 is when there really starts to be a disparity. Um, You see in various wars and the various wars that took place between Europeans and Africans prior to the 1850s, um, there's the Europeans probably lose most of them. You know, there's the various wars we touched on between the Ashanti and the British and their Fonti allies. 
There's uh, wars between the Portuguese and a kingdom in Central Africa called Congo, in which the Congolese defeat the Portuguese. There's a series of battles in East Africa, one between the uh, the Portuguese and a Somali kingdom called the Sultanate of Ajuran, uh, in which the Portuguese are defeated, and another one against another Somali kingdom called the Sultanate of Adal, in which the Portuguese are defeated. So I really don't want people to leave with this the impression that European armies were just better than West African ones throughout most of history. Rather, I want people to leave with the impression that until relatively recently, until around 1850, West African and East African armies were essentially the equals of European ones. I'll admit that when it comes to other aspects of military, specifically the navies, there was a large disparity prior to that. But in terms of terrestrial armies, they were approximately equal for a surprisingly long time. And the last thing I really want to leave on is what I think is the most important takeaway, which is that industrialization and not military superiority was the key factor in Europeans colonizing Africa. That the European colonization uh, in the various wars that they fight in Africa, not just with the Ashanti, but in general, you see a common trend in which the African armies and the European armies initially fight to a stalemate, and then the African armies run out of ammunition and the Europeans win. It is a surprisingly consistent theme. You see it in wars that the French fight with the Mandinka people, and you see it in wars that the that the uh, Belgians fight in the Congo. Um, you see it in wars in East Africa and in West Africa. Um, and, you know, of course, we saw it with the Ashanti. So... I really want people to get it in their heads that it wasn't that the Europeans had better guns or anything like that that really let them win the day in this in these wars of colonization. But rather, the big factor that gave them an advantage was the manufacturing of ammunition, of all things. Um, because, you know, better guns are only as good as they are if you have bullets to fire, right? And it's so interesting that you bring that back up as you were talking about that earlier in our conversation I'm really interested, as listeners know, in the the Philippine-American War at the turn of the century. And that is almost identical. It's a matter of having the bullets to fire and having, you know, some kind of manufacturing base to create the bullets to fire. So I'm so glad you brought that up. That I think is a super consistent theme in this period of time, the end of the 1800s and going forward in manufacturing as we know, is critical. Indeed. I think that in the colonial struggle, the battles are certainly a lot more dramatic than, you know, economies of scale and uh, modes of production, which is why they get more attention. But if you want to truly understand uh, how colonialism works, I would recommend you put a, you, you sort of Alter your perception away from focusing on battles and wars and focus it more on the economic angle, because that's what really allowed Europeans to win the day in the Ashanti War and through most colonial wars throughout this period. Yeah, especially when you're looking at the British as well. I think they they're famously do that better or did that better in their imperial days than almost anyone. Oh, exactly. That's a, that's a big thing I, I, I forgot to bring up is that the British... Even among Europeans, uh, part of their success came from that they had superior manufacturing capabilities to the to the Russians, which allowed them to defeat them in the uh, Crimean War, or you know to the 
uh, pretty much anyone else in Europe for a really long time. Yeah, and oh, you just gave me another topic to <laughs> to think about as well. I wasn't even the Crimean War for some reason wasn't even on my radar, but you put it on there. So thank you for that, and thank you also for coming on talking in such depth about these conflicts that I really am learning about for the first time. So I'm super excited. Thank you again, Andy. This has been a lot of fun. And so before I let you go, if people like what they heard, I mentioned last episode, but I'll let you bring it up this time. Where can they find your amazing content? Uh, Yes, uh, my podcast, I run it. It's called The History of Africa. You can find it. I don't know. If you use an app to download podcasts onto your phone, you can probably find it there. You know, Apple Podcasts, uh, Amazon Music, Spotify, uh, Overcast, whatever it is, we're on it. Uh, you can also find me uh, at my website, historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com, which, in which, in addition to finding uh, my podcast, you can also find stuff that I write about African history. And uh, currently, we're doing we're not on a season about the Ashanti yet. I'm thinking I might do that next after what I'm doing. Right now, we have a more ancient focus. We're looking at the Oxumites of Ethiopia an ancient empire that even expanded outside of Africa, one of the few African empires to really expand outside the continent. And so if that interests you, please check out the podcast. I think you'd really enjoy it. You know, a lot of people say things. They they say African history is really underrepresented. I wish I knew more about it. So if you want to fulfill that wish and learn a bit more about African history, this is a great place to find it. Well said. And I'll plug myself again. If when you're done listening to the History of Africa podcast, come on back or, you know, go back and forth between our podcasts. But remember to subscribe, rate, review if you haven't already. Tell your friends. And I'll, I was going to say, see, I often do this. <laughs> I'll be with you next time. Thanks so much, Andy. All right. It was a pleasure to come on. <laughs>